Uh, look, I think you need considerably more than me. I think we'd agree. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, God, our maker, our judge, and also the one who comes in and dwells in his people to show us the truth, to lead us in righteousness and in truth and in grace. Reveal to us your truth today. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, show us who Jesus is and show us who we are in light of who you are. Lead us to walk in line with your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're, we're, as you may have guessed, if you've been here for a while or even just from that Bible reading, stepping back into the Revelation. We're in chapter 11. If you didn't take the chance when Bron said it and you want to, or even if you don't want to, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible, whip it open, chapter 11 of the Revelation. There's a whole stack of Bibles back there. No one should be lacking one. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big chapter. It's a challenging one to interpret, but it's also a chapter that gives us enormous encouragement and enormous insight as the people of God today and in every age. And it's important that we note that this is actually a part of a, of a section, what we're looking at today. Um, so, so the section, the, the, the prophetic kind of chunk this one fits into, goes from the beginning of chapter 8, verse 2, I would say, uh, to the end of chapter 11. So this is the final bit of a bit of a stretch, uh, and, and, and th that, that then fits more broadly in the book as the second retelling of the way that the world is between the first and second comings of Jesus from the perspective of heaven. You might recall last week, uh, Dad, Phil, no matter what you call him, uh, said that the seven seals gave us history from the perspective, or, or no, history with a focus on the church from the perspective of heaven. The seven trumpets give us history with a focus on the unbelieving world. Well, we're, we're still in the seven trumpets today. We, we didn't actually finish that last week. Uh, but just like at the end of the seven seals, oh, sorry, at the end of the sixth seal, do you remember, there was a interlude, there was a gap, there was something happened, a gap where a big question, who can stand in the day of God's wrath, was answered, showing that the church, those who, who are sealed from every tribe and tongue and nation, they are those who will stand in the day of God's wrath. And just like that, here in the seven trumpets, after the sixth trumpet, we get another interlude between sixth and seventh. And just like in the seals, this interlude is there to answer the tension of the text so far, the, the, the question that's been crying out from it, although it hasn't explicitly cried out this time. Now, what, what question, what tension? Well, uh, remember in chapters 8 and 9, if you were here last week, if you weren't, don't worry, I'll explain it. We, we read descriptions of judgment falling on the world throughout history, and we called them the warning judgments. Natural disasters, falls of empires, demonic activity in this world, given ultimately by God to warn the world that a final judgment is coming. A day has been set and to turn back. And it's a non, 
an incomplete and not, not comprehensive judgment then in these warnings, only affecting a third repeatedly in that passage, not final, not complete, mercifully given to warn the world of judgment that is to come. You know, when, that's not my passage for today, but, but think, when people lose loved ones, when terrible natural disasters happen, I mean, today is a day for that, right? If you haven't already heard, there was a big old earthquake overnight in Morocco and thousands of people have died. When bombs are falling, when seemingly unbeatable nations just crumble to dust... These things are intended by Satan for destruction, but a higher throne intends them as warnings. Intends them to be a part of bringing about repentance and faith in the nations. But incredibly, what, what did we see last week? What did, what did we get? Uh, what was the result of these warning judgments? Uh, it, it came up there in chapter 9. Uh, I'll go there. Uh, it's 9 verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. In fact, it says it twice that they did not repent of their idolatry, of their sin. We, mankind, are a stubborn mob. The response of mankind when faced with the loud, the overwhelming warnings, the overwhelming reality that there is a God and he is just and you are on the wrong side of his justice, is to double down on sin. Is to turn back to the false gods and never, uh, the things that never satisfied, right? The things that we ran to and we already know don't actually fill the gap that we're trying to fill with them. They could never save us. They could never get us out of this. And, and to dig deeper into those things to rescue us. Disaster alone is not enough to save, to drive people to recognize and to worship God. Something more is needed. And chapter 11 exists to answer the question, what will bring about repentance and salvation? What could do that? If God's great warnings throughout history don't on their own do that, what will? And as the chapter begins... Remembering that this is a section focused on the world. Nevertheless, the camera pans back to the church, especially as she relates to the world, you see. And before the seventh trumpet sounds, we get uh, a picture of three things. Which This is what we're going to spend most of our time working through today. We get a picture of the reality of the church. We get a picture of the activity of the church. And we get a picture of the results of the church, because I don't like rhyming. And also because that's what's in the passage. So first, we get a picture of the reality of the church in verses 1 to 2. John's given a measuring rod, and he's told, go and measure the temple. Now, let me say at the outset, this isn't talking about a literal temple. Twelve times in the Revelation, the word temple gets used. Twelve times. And, and what they all have in common is that they don't talk. In fact, sorry, I should take that back. Once, and only once, does it seem to be speaking about a literal temple in chapter 21 when it refers to there being no literal temple in the new heavens and new earth. 
No, what's in view here is the same temple that the New Testament actually brings up repeatedly across it, a spiritual temple. 1 Peter 2 is a really clear-cut, easy place to go to get this demonstrated. It tells Christians that like living stones, we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In fact, even within the Revelation, you might remember back in chapter 3, it promised faithful believers they would be pillars in the temple of God. And now here in Revelation 11, John measures this temple. And what's being shown is the reality of the church's existence in this world. It's a bit difficult for us to grasp. Again, we're not super clear on apocalyptic literature. It's not something we run into usually. To get what's happening here, you have to go back. Once again, we, we, we keep running into this. You have to go back to the Old Testament foundations of this. And the primary reference here is actually... An, be thankful, I'm not going to read this out. Eight whole chapters of the, the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, in those eight chapters, an angel takes the prophet on a tour around the temple. Now, there is no temple at the time. This is a promised temple. And they measure it in, in enormous detail. They measure it. The significance of that there is that in, for Ezekiel, he's being shown that the temple will be established and will be protected. There is a temple coming that will be established and protected. And here in Revelation 11, we're seeing that expanded. John is shown, being shown again that the church, the temple as the New Testament knows her, is to be established and protected. In fact, it is established and protected. He is told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. This is uh, similar to what we got in chapter 7. The church is spiritually secure, spiritually protected. For those who truly believe in Jesus, salvation is secure, is the message here. But he's then told not to measure the outer court. And this is where it starts getting a little bit baffling because it is the, the outer court is to be given over to the nations for them to trample the city for 42 months. So there's a, there's a, what, what's being shown here is there's a twofold reality for the church. There is an inner reality, a, re, a heavenly reality. We are protected because our salvation is secure. So no matter what the world throws at us, we need not tremble in fear because the church is established and will not be removed and we will be eternally secure with God. We can stand firmly in that, knowing that truth. But, and there is an outer reality. The church is, will suffer in this world and will be trodden down by the powers of this world which oppose the breaking in of the kingdom of God which we represent in this world. Established but downtrodden. Secure yet suffering is the picture we get here. It actually echoes what we just heard in, in chapters, uh, chapter 10 last week. John was told to eat a scroll, do you remember? Another one of these funny apocalyptic images. But a scroll that was bitter in his stomach, but sweet like honey in his mouth. And then he was told that he had a message to prophesy. And, and, and there's, a, there's a sweetness to the declaration of the gospel, isn't there? We proclaim the only hope for ourselves and for this world. 
the only good news for ourselves and for this world of any eternal consequence. It's like nothing else that you will ever encounter the gospel. And yet there is a bitterness too, because in this world, as the waves of the kingdom of light crash against the kingdom of darkness, darkness will try to extinguish the light with suffering and with trial, as well as temptations to compromise, as we've seen again and again in this book. Church, it's vital that we get this, the reality of the Christian life, which Jesus calls you to, if you're a follower of Jesus. The reality of the church, which all of the New Testament authors call us to, is not one without struggles and trials. It's not an easy life that we're called to. It's not a life of sitting around and waiting. We shouldn't expect to come to Jesus and live out an unaffected life. There is a set time in which we will struggle and suffer. Comprising and that, and that time is the time from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. You personally probably won't suffer and struggle for that amount of time because we don't live for 2,000 plus years in this world. There is a set time in which we'll struggle and suffer. Notice that. There's a fixed time to this suffering. He says for 42 months, three and a half years, half seven. Ah, that's one of those revelation numbers, isn't there? Half the number of completion. The same number of months as Israel was in the wilderness, by the by, on their way from Egypt to the promised land. But while we are in the wilderness of this world, in the midst of struggles and suffering, the Christian's eternal life is not vulnerable. We must be ready to suffer for the gospel and we must be empowered to do that by the security that is yours in the gospel. It cannot be taken away. And then we get this, this second part of the vision, which is a, a picture of the activity of the church. And, and we get a, a threefold activity of the church. John sees two lampstands. Now, some people think, and, and, and you know, it, it's an okay position, that the two lampstands represent two actual people, like a Moses and an Elijah, uh, or a John the Baptist, and uh, insert someone here. Um, uh, the, the image comes from Zechariah uh, 3 and 4, um, where, where he sees a vision of two lampstands and two olive trees, and they, they fairly clearly at that point represent uh, Zerubbabel, the priest, and, and the, the governor at the time, uh, Joshua. I think I got them wrong, wrong way around. Joshua's the priest. But um, now John sees these two lampstands, uh, and I think actually more likely the identification here is with the people of God, the church. Uh, a really good reason to think that is that already in the Revelation, the word lampstand has come up a lot, and it's always referred to the church symbolically. Why two lampstands? Well, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it's possible that it's because in chapters 2 to 3 of the Revelation, if you remember when we went through that, there were how many faithful churches, how many that didn't have a reprimand from Jesus and told that they were doing it wrong, that they, that they were walking off the track. There were two who were faithful in their witness. So these two lampstands 
representing the people of God, have a twofold activity in this world. I said three before. Hmm. I meant to say two. We witness and we repent. God says to John, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. Notice that, in fact, they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That is 42 months, three and a half years. For the same amount of time that the church suffers, the church prophesies. The church declares. So many of the images that John then gets given are of Old Testament prophets, especially of Elijah, actually. The cooling down of fire and the stopping of the rain are both really prominent images from the ministry of Elijah, the prophet. Now, note, biblically, what makes a prophet a prophet isn't signs, and what makes a prophet a prophet isn't telling the future. A prophet is someone who is empowered by the Spirit of God to declare the message of God to the people of the world. And church, if you believe in Jesus, you have been given the Spirit of God for this purpose. That you might prophetically witness to the world. God hasn't just left you on your own to do this. He's put his spirit in you to do this. This world, as it is, is coming to a close. There is a judgment to come, like a trumpet blasting every trial and every struggle foreshadows this coming end. And there is one name given under heaven by which we can be saved. There is one way for forgiveness. There is one saviour who died to take your sins to the grave, who laid in the grave to prove that he truly died and who rose again to demonstrate that he had conquered sin and death. And we have been given this message to declare prophetically in this world, believe in the Lord Jesus and enter into life and salvation and be saved. This is, this is the existence, this is the activity of the church. And you know, let me say, perhaps, perhaps you're just hearing the prophetic word of witness today for the first time or for the bazillionth time, but you're realizing you're, you're really hearing it and realizing this isn't something you've believed. You've realized that you haven't thrown yourself on Jesus. You haven't repented and turned to him. Let me say, that could be today. You can come to the cross of Jesus today and he can take it from you. He can take your brokenness and sin and you can be saved. If that is you, come, talk to me or talk to... Darren, or talk to, you know, there's, a, there's a bunch of people here who would be happy to talk and pray with you about that. God is not waiting to whack you over the head. God, God is waiting to welcome you with open arms as a loving father. But then, okay, notice here, coming back to this passage, the clothing that the witnesses wear. Symbolically, they are dressed in sackcloth. Now, we got farmers here. We know what Hessian bags are like they're not, not the most comfy thing in the world. Um, but, but sackcloth is both the garb of the prophet, uh, again, kind of hammering that message home, but more prominently, more commonly in the Old Testament, it's the clothing of mourning and repentance. The, you know, mourned in sackcloth and ashes. You know, if you type that into a, a, a Bible search thing, you, you'll get a whole bunch of results from the Old Testament. The church is to be constantly turning away from sin and constantly turning to God. This empowers, this sustains our witness. 
Only when we are humbled before God, only when we are living dependently on Him, only when we recognize our failings and our need and find our own need fulfilled in Jesus, will we be effective in declaring to the needs of the world that He is enough. Only when in the midst of a world that is always trying to hide its sin and brokenness. Have you, have you ever noticed that, that, that everyone seems to have it together? Like, but, but only when you get to know someone properly do you find out that they don't. But it just seems like it's not an odd coincidence that just the people that you've got to know properly don't have it together. <laughs> you know, that you are the only ones who have brokenness. It's, it's just that you got past the barrier. You know, and if, if you might be one of those who's just kind of still hiding in that shell of thinking you're the only one who doesn't have it together. Um, and, and let me just let me just get a little old hammer and crack that today and, and, and just show you all of us. Everyone's broken. Everyone is needy. Everyone is simple. And yet the practice of the whole world is to hide. You know, since Adam and Eve. Right. What do they do? They, they, they eat the fruit and immediately they hear God walking in the garden and they go, hey, God, over here. No, they, go, they jump in a bush because you can hide from God in a bush. That's going to work, right? Um, it doesn't, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Um, but, but in the midst of a world, and only when, in the midst of a world that is always hiding its sin and brokenness, we are practicing the freedom of the gospel to repent openly with one another, to have brothers and sisters around you who know you and who you can be open with and who you can speak with about your brokenness and who you can feel the repentance, the, the, the forgiveness of Jesus with. Only when we are a people who are dealing with our sin and growing closer to God in the process, only then will our witness be truly effective. This is a challenge for us. I, I hope you understand. It's Always our old instinct that tells us to hide and always the spirit that tells us to go talk to that brother, talk to that sister and, and, and let them know, let them in on what's going on with you. You know, I wonder if our struggles to reach the people around us in our community, in the communities of Australia, don't often very much just root down in this specific issue, a lack of personal ongoing repentance and humility in churches. So we've seen a, a picture of the reality of the church, established and secure, yet downtrodden and suffering. We've seen a picture of the activity of the church, always prophetically witnessing and always repenting. And then we get a picture of the results of this prophetic, repentant witness of the church. First, the, this, isn't, this isn't the happiest bit of the text. First result is they die. We, us. That's, that's the church in this picture. And the world laughs. Now, <laughs> we've already seen this, right? The church is going to suffer. That's the expectation of the Bible. In fact, it says that Satan will rise and strike us down, but only once our other activities are completed. He'll, he'll appear to beat us. Like it appeared that he beat Jesus. You know, even if you don't die persecuted, which most Christians in Australia, for most of Australian, Australia's short kind of Christian history, haven't done, right? It's, it's an extreme anomaly here. But even so, 
We go through life declaring we have hope in Jesus we have, and then we die. You know, we do. We do. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly common reality to everyone. And, and the world might see that even then and go, wow, these guys, what was it worth? You know, when, when the world saw Jesus on the cross and the chief priests walked past, they mocked him. And so when the church suffers, we can expect, or even when the church, when the church suffers in small ways, when the church suffers in big ways, when the church dies, or even when you just go through trials and the world says, God doesn't seem to be protecting you so well right now. When your peers mock you for your faith, because you believe in this ridiculous fairy tale? You know, that, I, I feel for our younger people. Um, I, I feel like in school and in uni, you're going to face that in a big way. When you're excluded from work or excluded from social activities because you refuse to deny the importance of following Jesus and living life his way, the way he has led you to, not the world's way. When Christians suffer, when Christians are imprisoned and die for their faith, there will be those in the world who laugh and mock that. Who say, how foolish, how ridiculous are these people? How, how dumb were they? They wasted their life on a pipe dream. They've given up so much. Look what it's got for them. And you know, the picture, I don't know about you, I read Revelation 11 and I'm like, it sounds like Christmas. Like, like they, they start giving gifts to celebrate and, and stuff. And, you know, there's a, um, it just it seems that way. But it's not the end of the story. You see, in this word picture, the witnesses die and the world rejoices, but not forever. Because, they have, because the witnesses have life beyond this life. It says, after three and a half days... Possibly drawing this connection with, the, with the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. After three and a half days, they rise. The breath of life returns into them and they are called up to be with God. Satan appears to beat God's people in this world. But only perfectly in line with God's purposes being fulfilled and never in a way that finally conquers us. This is certainly a personal reality. We will be raised. We will have new life with Jesus. We will not be put to shame in the end. But remember, it's not just individuals who are on display here. This is the lampstands. And the language there, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. That's taken directly from Ezekiel chapter 37, where the spiritual renewal of God's, renewal of God's people is displayed. You know, valley of dry bones, if you know it. So this is a picture, also a picture, not just a personal picture, but primarily a picture of ongoing, repeated reality for the church throughout this age. The world tries to kill her, and yet she gets back up again. God raises her. Let me ask you this. What government, what empire, what opposition has ever been able to keep the church down? Name it for me. China, North Korea, the Ottomans, maybe somewhere in Africa somewhere there, no? 
the Romans. In fact, though they try their best to kill her, she keeps getting back up and in the end she outlives them all. Where is the Roman Empire today? Rome, who built the great Colosseum to display their dominance and there fed Christians to the lions. Rome, who used Christians as torches. You can go and get a Colosseum tour for less than 50 bucks right now. And like this is in a world where prices are up, right? You can go and tread on the dust of that empire and yet the church is going strong because Jesus is sustaining her. We have God on our side. So no matter what gets thrown at us, we rise again. Do you see? This is, this is the repeated theme of the last 2,000 years. Remember, the focus in this passage, though, is not just what happens to the church, but how the church relates to the world. Church, when the people who look down on us, who disregard the message of the gospel, when they see the hope of the resurrection in us, mixed with that witness to the truth of the gospel, it changes things. Do you remember? Okay, we've covered this already, but we're just coming back to it. Back in chapters 8 to 9, God sends all of the warnings, right? And, and, and no one repents. That's what happened in those chapters. That's my summary of 8 and 9. Warning, warning, warning. Nah. Well, we read now that an earthquake came, killing a tenth of the city. Now, that's terrifying, and the people were terrified, it says. But consider what we've, we're being shown here. Another warning judgment, right? Another of the things that were happening all the way through 8 and 9 with no effect. But this time, something's different. This time, the people of God have witnessed prophetically and repentantly to the city about the good news of Jesus. And what was not possible in chapters 8 and 9 happens in chapter 11. The thing that no amount of warnings on their own could do occurs. We read that those who remained were terrified, but they gave glory to God the God of heaven. Not they didn't repent of their other gods, their idols. They gave glory to the one true God. What will be, bring about repentance and salvation? What is God's chosen way in this world of effectively saving the lost, of bringing those who in the face of judgment would double down on glorifying idols? What is God's chosen way of bringing about repentance and salvation? The repentant, sacrificial, hope-filled, prophetic witness of you and me, of the church. Church, God has given us this privileged position in his plan. Through us, he brings about the repentance and salvation of the lost. Does this not fill your life up with meaning? with an invitation to action. Every time you choose to repent and trust in the forgiveness of Jesus, you are taking part in God's one plan for the salvation of everything. It's not just a personal thing. You're taking part in the restoration of the cosmos. 
Every time you choose to boldly tell someone about Jesus, you are participating in the victorious conquest of this dark world by the kingdom of light. Every time when you face struggles and suffering, you choose to embrace the truth of your eternal hope and live like it's true. Let people know that you have sure hope even if you die. You are declaring the one and only way that people can be saved in this world. So church, it's fitting that we'd finish today with the seventh trumpet. Just like the final seal represented the ending of the old world and the beginning of the new, so now does the seventh trumpet here, very transparently. Look at these words. And what we're going to do today with these words, we're just going to very briefly rejoice in these words. Rejoice in the fact that a day is coming fixed and certain when this will be true. An eternity is coming, which we can live in light of now. And this will remain eternally true from then onwards. Revelation 11.15 says... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. On that day, the people of God sing, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Did you notice what was missing there? So, so like three times already in this book, uh, God and Jesus have been announced as he who is, who, who was and who is and who is to come. For all of history, we long for the coming of Jesus, for the restoration of all things. We long for the day, as this song says, when his judgment comes and when he rewards his people and when those who consumed the world and opposed God, Satan and all of his minions, the destroyers of the earth are destroyed. No more. That is the day when he will come. And here he, we see it displayed because they sing to the Lord who is and who was, but who is not to come because he has come. This is the final reality. So church, let me put it plain. Live in repentance. Live in witness. Live for the day that is to come. And there is a day coming when he will have come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our Saviour and our God, we thank you that in you we are secure if we have put our faith in you. And we fall before you, Lord, and say we're not always the best at this, but you are the best. So we ask that you would lead us, Lord. Lead us to trust what is true of us in you, that we are secure and established. The church will not fail or fall because you have established her. Lead us to walk in it, Lord. Lead us to walk in the activity that you have given us, even though we may suffer. Let us be a prophetic witness in this world. 
I ask for each of us here who have trusted in you that you would move in our hearts this week and show us a moment in which we can speak to another about the good news of Jesus. I pray, pray that you would lead us as a repentant people who are not content to hide like the world hides, who recognise that as a fallen thing, as a thing that has been defeated by your cross. Lord, I pray that we would see the fruit I pray that we would see people coming to faith for your glory. And Lord, I pray that we would live for the day of your return. We pray it in Jesus' beautiful, mighty name. Amen.